Welcome to the Daily Canon Podcast. Here to talk all things Arsenal is your host, Matthew Wade. You like Paul? Yeah, no, just, you know, that kid that got um, done for um, racially right. abusing Ian Wright. Um, the judge has not issued a criminal conviction. No, he's basically got publicly bollocked. Yes. Yeah. Because public bollockings work, don't they? <laughs> well, I, I suppose that the youth in question will be under no illusions if he does it again. It'll be a rather more serious do do, and uh, people will recognise him if he does it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even if public bollocking is a step forward for people being racist on social media. So, anyway, listeners, hello. It's another Daily Canon Weekly podcast. Uh, that's a slightly strange intro, but we might as well leave it in because it is topical <laughs> and it is about some of the things that afflict us as a society today. And also, it helps us avoid. Uh, avoid talking about Manchester United winning 9-0 or indeed yesterday's game for a few minutes more. But anyway, uh, to help me go through some kind of collective therapy session uh, for all of us uh, and to talk about the home draw against Man United and the debacle at Molyneux uh, is Anita Sambol from Croatia as always. Hello, Anita. Hello, hello, hello. And Paul Williams all the way from, well, just south of the river. How are you, Paul? <laughs> I'm all right, despite being south of the river. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I suppose these days you can't go anywhere, so not being able to get a taxi home isn't so much of a deal. It was um, it was one of my big fears in life when Joe and I got together, actually, the, the thought of being south of the river more often than not. And um, I was right to fear that because I'm stuck here now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't go anywhere. I don't even know what north of the river is anymore. <laughs> you, you get to a bridge and it's, you shall not pass! Yes. <laughs> Stay south, even scum. Which is, which is ironic, because actually my office is literally just north of the River Thames. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, yeah. In, uh, in, in, the, in the ancient city of London, where the Romans were and the Saxons were, none of this south of the river burial ground bollocks. <laughs> Anyway, um, maybe, maybe we we're off to a flyer here. <laughs> hey. Maybe maybe we should continue with the small talk and the not talk. <laughs> well, I'm quite happy to continue the history lesson if it's about London, but I, I think that's probably a different podcast. Um, yeah. No doubt we shall get into some historical related content as we go on, but that's another matter. <laughs> uh, so, speaking of historical content, obviously, one of the games this week was at least a historical rivalry. Uh, I mean, it's hard to know how to feel sort of after that Man U game, wasn't it, the nil-nil? I mean, nice nice to slightly dent their ridiculous title challenge, uh, <laughs> where how a team can play well five times a season and be title challenges would be on me. But anyway, um, what did you both make of the home game against that lot from Old Trafford? <laughs> I know this is a lot more stressful for Anita, so I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> let it let it out. I mean, I I was uh, confident about the, the match. I thought that we will we will win. I think I even go, went with a, a clean sheet win uh, at the po uh, podcast recording last week, and I mean it was close. If that Lacazette uh, shot uh, free kick went in, it would be fantastic. But I mean, let's not kid ourselves. They had quite a few better <laughs> chances, and it was weird that they didn't score. But I mean, as you said, the match is—it's not easy to 
to you know recapitulate that that match because it's a draw it's is it a point one or two points lost uh we played well we looked okay better in the second half than in the first half but I, I feel like we could have won, but we could, could have easily lost like 2 or 3-0. It's just really an odd match and I have nothing better to say than to, yes, okay, it's a, it's a draw. We didn't concede. We kept our clean sheet and we got that one point, which is absolutely better than, than, than nothing. would be amazing that if we got the double against United in, in this season, we were close, but I mean... A point is a point against such a big rival and not a title challenge. <laughs> I mean, that's not massively different to Mikel Arteta's post-match interview, actually. <laughs> um, what about you, Paul? What was your thoughts? Um, I think, like every other Arsenal fan, it's the lingering... What if, what if we had Kieran Tierney? What if we had Bukayo Saka? And what if we had Aubameyang? Although some Arsenal fans are already um, seeming to write Aubameyang out of not just this team's future, but this team's present. Um, I personally think if you put Aubameyang on the end of that Willian chance, he scores it. Um, which, which isn't, uh, I think, Willian... A confident William probably would have done a little bit better with it. I don't want to sit here and back William for his performance because actually I thought it's the best he's played for us since the opening day of the season. Um, yeah. But it is an undeniable fact that when you take, and we saw you know, the impact that Bukayo Saka had in the first 10 minutes yesterday, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you take players of genuine quality out of any football team, it's not going to be that easy. Um, I So, I, I, I do remember saying before the game, because people were kicking off on Twitter, particularly about Saka, because I don't think anyone quite understood why he wasn't in the squad, as if Arteta was just going to arbitrarily dump <laughs> our best player this season out of the, uh, the 20. Um so it was a case of, well, this is the team and let's see what happens. I think we acquitted ourselves quite well. We defended well. As Anita said, United had two great chances. And of course, Leno made that save from Fred. Yeah. Um, we could easily have lost. We could just as easily have won. I mean, that Lacazette, which is a brilliant free kick, by the way. And mm. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why do we keep letting defenders take free kicks? That, that is... <laughs> But Cedric now, I mean, come on. Anyway, um, I, I guess I was a little bit disappointed after the game, but given the circumstances of it and given that Man United should have been playing with 10 men for 75 minutes of the game, um, I, yeah, I, you never want to draw games at home, but I think it was a good point. Yeah, and that seems to be pretty much the consensus from almost everyone I've seen say anything about the game really which it was an even game between two teams playing pretty well Arsenal had home advantage were a bit under strength United uh, obviously on a good run of form had slightly better chances um, overall uh, although uh, of course I did enjoy lots of people kind of going oh no what a miss from Cavani from such a reliable striker so Cavani's missed chances like that his entire career Cavani's strength has never been efficient finishing. Cavani's strength has always been the fact that 
He's six foot two or six foot three, has great movement in the box, he's quick, he's good in the air, he's physical. And so he all he's like the he's like a bigger Uruguayan Andy Cole. He always gets lots of chances and he always misses some. We saw him when he played for PSG against us, like miss some absolute sitters. <laughs> I mean, like as he did for United, and that's just the player he's always been. But of course, you know, the United Wankfest media tend to kind of like to reframe things as soon as they're in a in a, a Mancunian context. I mean, the game really did have that feeling in the last sort of twenty minutes of it was just going to be one of those games where United nick one, and then that would have been it. Um, yeah, definitely. So that that didn't happen, I think we can be grateful for. And um, I, one thing I wanted to ask you both, just before I forget to mention it related to the game, do you think United were wearing that away kit because of Scott McTominay's uh, <laughs> intestinal <laughs> problems? Because <laughs> I was watching yeah, it with my funny. mates. Everyone was like, why are United wearing this horrible kit? What colour is that even? I mean, is, is it grey? Is it brown? Is it... Definitely no. I mean, even my husband doesn't like it. So, it's well, it's, I, I don't know. For me, it's it's no worse than the uh, abducted panda look or abducted zebra look of, of their other kit this season. It looks like it should be on like on natural skin stretched across some kind of drum that you buy from a dodgy market claiming to be from South Africa. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Adidas did better for us, definitely. It's true. And Although quite, I, I'm not, not a big fan of, of our marble-inspired kit, but still... No, it's not my favourite, and, and, and for me, an Arsenal <laughs> away kit that isn't yellow always feels a bit... But uh, I, I, I notice, uh, Anita, uh, you don't have video listeners, so this is slightly wasted on you, but uh, I am taking great pleasure in you wearing the Michael Thomas Anfield special shirt, uh, which is particularly good <laughs> for someone who uh, wasn't an Arsenal fan at the time because you were probably like... <laughs> Not born. <laughs> I was Stephen born. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm just going to throw myself out of the window now. I'm too old. Uh, so, but you know, so you know, got to get the history in there. Um, yeah, yeah. A, a, a great win against a great rival. Uh, yeah, I mean, the United game was one. It, it's hard to feel upset about it. We could feel a little bit disappointed anticipation, but of course, in anticipation, we didn't know we were going to be missing three key players. We knew that we might yeah, be missing one or two of them. In addition to that, what, what uh, that missing Saka and Tierney, which Paul mentioned, I think that with, with Saka and especially how he played against Wolves, definitely we would have mm. won this match. But also the fact that uh, Thomas Party had a really <laughs> off day at the office. I mean, it's never just one thing for us. It's everything <laughs> at once. Yeah, well, I commented before the game, when was the last time anyone can remember us having our, what we think is our first choice 11 fit to Bates Man United? And, uh, <laughs> it's pretty rare, and when it happens, we tend to win. I, I think Anita probably wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it that, that one when uh, we practically won the match in 20 minutes? When Alexis and Mesut oh, Ezel combined, uh, mind you, that did have wall cut up front, so we're still not sure if was that oh. was that tactical or. <laughs> you, you have a better memory than I do, Mesut. So. Uh, 
I was thinking it was the it was the one at Old Trafford in 1990 that led to the massive punch up and two points deducted. But anyway, <laughs> 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 bit, of a, bit, of, bit of a reminiscence. Yeah, where Arsenal got done for more, even though it started by Brian Leclerc trying to kick Nigel Wurtenin's head in. Um, <laughs> And while we're on the subject of refereeing bias, of course, as Paul referenced, uh, so uh, Bruno Fernandes just reminding everyone what a rat-faced little shitbag he is. My God. Uh, uh, I mean, not content with making any contact, even in his vicinity, feel like appear like GBH. I mean, that challenge on Jacker, and of course, of course, the wonderful officials of the English Premier League uh, deemed it not even worthy of a second glance. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's something that everyone keeps saying in whenever something like that happens in Arsenal matches, but it definitely fits right now. If it was the opposite way, if Chaka was on Bruno Fernandes. Jaka would have been sent to a gulag. <laughs> like, no, not, not a second of thinking. Wasn't Obama Young sent off for accidental stamp or some, on someone last season? Similar, he, yeah. Yeah, he made a bad tackle on yeah. the guy at Palace, Max. Not, in, not intentional, but still it was a really nasty one. But it was and the thing is, with the Bruno Fernandes one, you can see him looking directly at Jacques yeah, Achilles. That's yeah. <laughs> Before and during the, 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 uh, or the well, I don't know what you call it, raking challenge. <laughs> Well, it was a stamp, wasn't it? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, on his Achilles. The deliberate stamp, and um, I don't know what VAR is for if it's not for for, for things like that. What's the point? It's for millimetres of offsides. (laughs) So you can understand the referee maybe misses it because things happen very quickly in a Premier League football game. But VAR looking at that and saying, oh, no, nothing to see here. That's like Leslie Nielsen in the naked gun. I mean, come (laughs) on. It's it's, it's also that, you know, you can particularly forgive the ref in real time because it was just, you know, like Fernandes and the type of player Fernandes is as well. There's always been players like that. He's a bit of a snide little shit. And we all know that Xhaka is perfectly capable of accentuating contact uh, to try and win a, a free kick in the middle of the park. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, a little bit naughty, maybe a booking, maybe it wasn't hard to tell. And then you see it again, you're like, oh, you dirty fucker. <laughs> you know, it was funny, um, it, as is customary, I, I watched the game with my mates via Skype and yeah. Steve, the referee, was like, he was actually the first person to say he's not an Arsenal fan. I may have mentioned this before, but he was like, yeah. that's, that's a red card. Red card, no doubt. Mm. We were all like, oh, maybe, maybe not. You don't want to seem too biased, particularly on a call with <laughs> neutrals. But, um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, it, it frustrates me that I just feel like, as I you know, talking on the Slack chat earlier, I don't mind the rules being applied to Arsenal fans, uh, Arsenal players. They should be applied, but they should be applied to everyone. And, Time and time and time again, we watch Arsenal games, and I'm sick of talking about referees. I don't want to talk about referees. I don't. Want... <laughs> you chose the wrong fucking podcast to come on this way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, right, right. But I don't. You know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about referees. But like the job they do is like, and there's no excuse now because they've got VAR, and we, we sit and watch, and it doesn't make any fucking difference. They still make 
decisions that not not just are wrong, they're wrong. They're, they're inexplicable. Harry Maguire was booked in that game. Yeah, he did. He he jumped for a ball and strangled Alex Lacazette in the process of doing it. Cedric had already been booked for something that was similar. If uh, all right, I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm biased, but no no one who listens to this is going to care about that bias. Cedric got booked for a lot less than what Harry Maguire did to Lacazette, and he'd already been booked. He should have been off the pitch as well. Not to mention, um, not to mention, ducking that challenge just... in the air with Lacazette when Lacazette landed on his fucking head. You know that was. And then people that was Maguire bodying the guy in in true Harry Kane style, which is fundamentally dangerous and should be an automatic red card. And then people are talking about the one that Lacazette did, but Lacazette was looking at the ball all the way through that movement. He he doesn't look at the player, but Harry Kane giving that sneaky over the shoulder. Oh, where's uh, it's just the farce? It's like uh, I, I. also Lacazette got flattened because he had no idea the guy was coming (laughs) yeah yeah that really looked uh, dangerous and he looked dead when he landed but but it's like you can get away with anything as long as you're wearing a red shirt if you're wearing a red and white shirt it's a little bit up for grabs always helps if you're an England international as well that's a good one or if you're media flavour of the month Uh, you know if, if Bruno Fernandes couldn't take a decent free kick his disciplinary record would be somewhat different in this country, let's put it that way. Uh, but he is the archetypal Snyder fucker <laughs> that you've always had in every league. There's always a few of them about who are basically very good, but cheats. <laughs> a bit like Harry Kane. Uh, <laughs> Harry Kane looks slightly <laughs> less like a water mammal. Uh, so, uh, well, actually, <laughs> not, not even a proper watermelon. I mean, Bruno Fernandes looks like a stoke or a weasel. He's, he's, like a, he's like one of the bad guys from Wind in the Willows. Um, anyway, um, uh, that's what, that's what kind of analysis I'm coming into. Yeah, 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 I know. But for those that are wondering what the noise is on the background, listeners, uh, Anita's cat is oh, sorry to make uh, guest, special guest appearances on the podcast by any means necessary. Uh, if oh, sorry, I will kick her out now. I think the cat might be a Man United fan, you know. <laughs> stop, stop saying all these terrible things about my team. It's a divided, it's a divided household. It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah. So I suppose yeah. you know we've also talked about the United game and how even it was and how we were relatively successful. I mean, how were you feeling after the United game in terms of looking ahead? Did it is it one that made you feel more or less optimistic going forward, or kind of? just status quo was maintained <laughs> i think for me it really you know it's to, to, to get a good point um given given the circumstances of the game it does add to this feeling that um arteta is quietly building something at arsenal i mean you it, we don't have to think too far back to Arsenal teams that, in the circumstances around the team selection and the way the game panned out, they could very easily have lost that game. Um, I, I, I think we played quite well, so it, it has given me a bit of hope going forward. And actually, even uh, I know we'll get onto this. I mean, yesterday watching that first half. Um, we were fucking brilliant for 
you know, 45, 47 minutes, <laughs> we, yeah. we played really, really well. Um, and I, I mean, what my worry is for this team is that we see, we seem to be a bit of a streaky team still. So that at the start of the season, we won four games. Then we went on that horrendous run that we don't want to talk about because you two really had to live through it and talk about it. Um, but, you. you know, we've been on a good run. And then all of a sudden, really, we we deserve to have more than the one point out of six that we've had from the last two games. But that's where we are. And my worry is that we might slide a little bit. I don't think we will because I think the the team is going in the right the right direction. But uh, I, I've seen a lot of talk about how this. Yes, it's, it's, it was a good run. We got some really good amount of points after the Christmas and everything. But there were some, a lot of people made the point that it was against teams that are slightly on the weaker side and not uh, big opponents like Man United were. And uh, I mean, yes, of course, they may, may not be Tottenham or Liverpool or, you know, City or big teams like that, but still, it's it's a big league and it's a league that that shows that everyone can be beat everyone. So even winning matches like that against teams that are made smaller, look look smaller, look you know weaker uh, on the table at the moment, it's still important. It as you Paul mentioned, we were on a big a bit of a bad run and there was a lot of talk about uh, Arteta maybe uh, is it time to go should we give him more chance or or that and I think that this good run of games meant more than just just points it meant so 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 much for confidence of the team of the manager and of the fans standing behind the manager as well so I think that it was a good and I really hope that it doesn't happen that these two slightly worse results uh, influence the 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 confidence that was built up in the team and in some players, but in particular like uh, Pepe, who has been struggling and is looking really fantastic at the moment. And hopefully, William can also build on the really great second half. I mean, the bar the bar is really low for William at the moment, but his second half against United was really well. And as you mentioned, Manchester, if his confidence was a bit better, he would score that goal. And it would be like, you know, renaissance that Chaka has been through quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I think it, it was that good run and the match against United uh, as well. It was more than just, you know, winning points and getting draws when, when needed and you know, uh, against a really good team. It meant a lot for the confidence and really hope that the one against Wolverhampton doesn't you know, bury all, all of that that was built on over the last month and a half, but that we take it like... Uh, you know, take it personally and perhaps, you know, just go out, play the best that we can as, as they played against uh, Wolves in the first half. Mm-hmm. Build on that, focus on that, uh, play against the referee if needed. Obviously, it is needed. But, you know, stay, keep, we need to keep that confidence going. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's building, isn't it? That, that attitude that, that is underpinned by confidence that makes you think whatever the circumstances you can maybe get back into the game and, and we'll talk about that when we move on to the Wolves game in a minute I mean lo- looking at the Man U match like yourselves I've, I've felt quite positive afterwards because yeah 
we were a slightly weakened team. Thomas Party's passing radar was like, <laughs> it was like someone was surrounding me with magnets and the whole thing was going haywire. Jaka was fantastic again. Um, yeah, Jaka's form since, since, his, since his best attempts to get himself forced out of the club has then, has then reverted to good Jaka again, which is, uh, which is always very nice to see. And him and the party are, are, are a sensible partnership because party can do the things that Jaka really can't. Uh, yeah. And so it allows Xhaka to focus a bit more on doing the things that he can do. Unfortunately, against Man United, one thing I didn't find funny about Party's performance is, like as as you were saying, he just couldn't find a teammate in that yeah. first half. It was like, oh my god! And then there was a point about half of the second half where we had like a, a five yard pass to Bellerin or something. He just kicked it straight out of play. And after that, he just stopped trying to do anything other than really simple passes. He was just like, right, okay, this shit ain't working today. I'm just going to do the simple things now. Like the progressive passing for me is just not happening today. And he actually slightly changed his performance. Yeah, definitely, which, really a bad, bad day at the office. I mean, it happens to a lot of yeah. people. So when he, when, he, when he commented such on social media afterwards, he didn't. He was kind of like, yep, that, <laughs> I was crap today, but at least we got a draw. Um, yeah. But but what I would take heart from is the fact exactly that, that yes, United did miss a couple of very good chances, but for the most part, particularly that period where they had a shit ton of possession, we just kind of kept them at arm's length. Um, I mean, I think their most attacking weapon was the huge surprise that Luke Shaw suddenly started playing well again. Now he's got a manager that doesn't hate him and insult him every five minutes. <laughs> Shocker. Amazing the difference that makes. Yeah. <laughs> Some people thrive when being treated like human beings at work. Um, yeah. So, and, and he created obviously a lot of their best stuff. Um, but aside from that, we mostly just kept them at arm's length, and it's that crucial thing, isn't it? That thing we've been trying to learn for a decade, which is how to not lose games you can't win. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, that for me was a real positive. Um, and th it's something that you've seen consistently. It, I mean, the big question about Arteta this season is less about defensive work because we've all kind of understood that okay, he's created a defensive structure that, yeah, there are still problems with it and it's not all the players in necessarily that ever would want, but basically the shape, the structure, how the team defending in patterns kind of works. And it certainly works the best it's worked at this club for quite some time when we had actually just better personnel. Um, so that's something that was reinforced by the United game. Uh, Shout out to Rob Holding, who was excellent again. Yeah. Again, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He was really good against United. Uh, a couple of really key interventions. Uh, actually, a few players made great interventions. I remember David Luiz made a very important tackle in that game as well. You know, those. He was man of the match, I think. Yeah, very possibly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, it depends on on which outlet you are watching the football match. Yeah, <laughs> depends on who yeah. gets the match award. Uh, he was Gary Neville's man of the match, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's typical David Lewis, isn't it? In a big game, he's either really good or really bad. Uh, <laughs> and that, But that's his, been his career, you know. He's always been a player that, when he's playing at his best, can be excellent. And when he's not, anything can happen. Um, which we'll move on to rush. shortly. Uh, so... <laughs> So, yeah, so that's the Man United game, which left us uh, feeling, as you say, generally optimistic and looking ahead to the trip to Molyneux. Obviously, the news that Bukayo Saka was back in the starting 11 was a good one. Um, I mean, what did you think of the starting lineup 
given the availability of players? Were there any question marks over it before we get into the? <laughs> I, well, I was just I was just grateful to get a lineup notification from the Arsenal app because I had no idea it was a six o'clock kickoff <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> Why am I getting team news at half past five? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, uh, yeah. yeah, it was an improvement on the United because obviously Saka was playing there. Still really frustrating that we didn't get... Uh, we we don't know what's happening with Tierney, actually. I mean, they have been a bit secretive on that, but I, I mean, other than that, I really didn't have anything wrong to say about that. Okay. Um, so, as alluded to, uh, we started pretty fast against Wolverhampton Wanderers. <laughs> was, um, uh, yeah. I, I, I was having technical difficulties, so I actually lost lost the game uh, just before we scored the disallowed goal, and so came back on to to see. And, and then my then the BBC app and my phone both told me it was one nil. I came back on to see nil nil, <laughs> and I was like, "What's going on?" <laughs> the parallel universe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a really bright start. The one that made you think a, a bit, oh, it's going to be one of those matches again. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, the goal. I'm, yeah, maybe in the seasons bef- before VAR, maybe that would have stood, would have been given. But, I mean, but you can't really fault the referee for disallowing that one because you would expect that to happen against Arsenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The opening goal, so it was re- but which was a really fun, bright, bright start and I mean, I can't even imagine if that went in Saka's chance. Was it like 20 seconds? To, Where he hit the post. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Just would be a fantastic start. Maybe it would be 9-0 like United played <laughs> later. That. Because I mean, that, that first half was just full of chances and uh, i mean the, obviously the goal as well and yeah just makes me after sleeping on it a bit besides being angry at the referees and all of that <laughs> kind of makes me a bit angry that we didn't uh, use uh, the chances that we had that we created and build up on the really fantastic performance in that first half that's kind of what hector bellerin alluded to after the match wasn't it he was saying that we should have been taking our chances more paul yeah, I think just to pick up on that, is there's still some young guys in the team, really, and I think it will. This will prove to be a good learning experience. I, there was a niggling feeling watching that first half that um, we were going to pay for our largesse in front of goal for me, mm-hmm. as brilliant as it was to watch. And it was genuinely some of the football we played in the first half. The way Partey had. Rediscovered his passing radar was was nice, you know, and he, he seemed to be cutting wolves open at, at will. Um, what was interesting for me is, um, you know, I think everyone that listens to this podcast and follows me on Twitter knows that I'm a I'm a fan of Aubameyang because how could you not be? But interesting to watch Arsenal playing with two wingers that were actually play playing well and can do the things in terms of keep keeping the ball and running with the ball and running. I'm not going to say running off the ball because that's Alba's strength is his movement. But yeah. we looked really, really, really bloody good in that first half. And it's quite interesting. I think we, the way we played as a result of having, and Pepe's picked up his game in the last two weeks, 
I tweeted last night. There's only one thing he he's read Robert Perez's comments yeah. recently. So, <laughs> something's happened with Pepe where it's like, oh, oh, I can't, I've, I've, he's he's remembered who he is. Maybe um, confidence, confidence. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe as simple as that. But I think we sort of saw what this team could be without Aubameyang, but we also saw what happens when you don't have someone in the team that puts the ball in the back of the net on a regular basis. Very unlucky with the Saka charts, but you could say that perhaps Steve again last night was saying, well, Lacazette's looking down the line. He shouldn't be offside there. He he should know. Mm -hmm. Um, The chance that Saka hit the post with, I was listening to Alan Davis on the Tuesday Club yesterday, who's um, you know, funny, but sort of listening to him, think, God, you're getting to be a bit of a moany old man because he was mo- he was talking about Pepe and the chances that Pepe put wide against United, and you know, Pepe's going for the corners, which is the right thing to do. But you, your execution's got to be spot on if you do that to score. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you put it wide, which is what happened on Saturday. But the Saka chance in particular is, which is why I mention it. He went for the corner, and unfortunately for us, he smashed it against the post. Pepe hit the bar, I think, later on. Yeah, tipped onto, tipped onto the bar by Ruben. Yeah. Um, it just, to me, it's one of those games. It's going to sting, I think. You know, the, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been on the coach or, or the train or however they got home last night because they did not deserve that game to turn the way that it did. But I think in the long run, if they, if they can um, uh, just have a positive mentality about it, you know, the, the way they played in the first half will, will go very, very well for the future, I feel. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good test for Mikel Arteta, I think, that he has to work with these players and have them focus on the first half and uh, not on the things that happened uh, at the yeah. end of the first half and during the second half, maybe, you know, to see how, how he gets that message across because he, he has been talking about that uh, uh, in the presser after the match as well. So mm-hmm. I think that it, we will see in the, uh, in the next match, uh, by the way. I mean, one of the things I was really impressed with the first half performance, apart from our attacking threat, um, was, you know, we all know that, all right, they haven't got Raul Jimenez and William Jose is still kind of bedding in, but he's, you know, he's a very good player. Uh, and we basically shut down their counter-attack threat for large parts of the first half, which we all know is their ma- their great strength, their superpower. It's what did for us at, against them at our place. And um, we're basically in, very much in control for most of that first half, as well as creating chances. And it was, a, and I was watching uh, the game on a stream. <coughs> uh, with Don Goodman as the co-commander. Oh no! And we all know that Don Goodman is very pro Wolverhampton Wanderers against any team that isn't based in the West Midlands, uh, and uh, well, just generally anyway. Uh, and he started with with uh, an amazing array of pro-Wolves bias in his commentary, just trying to make you know, poor old Wolves, they, you know, they've got a couple of players missing, it's so unfair, you know, all that bollocks and, and kind of like, you know, how well they were doing and, uh, and, and bigging up everything they did and trying to diminish everything Arsenal did. But then when the commentator, after Pepe's goal, the commentator said it's a deserved lead, Don Goodman was like, yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, Says it all, huh? <laughs> and... Uh, 
And actually, his comments about what happened later at the end of the half are also instructive, but we'll save those. Um, <laughs> big shout out, I have to say, big shout out to Nicola Pepe's goal. I mean, that was a yeah. co combination of skill, tenacity, and an unexpected moment of quality at the very end on his weak foot. Uh, I think almost the thing I liked about that most was the fact that he fought fought to get in a position to take a shot. I mean, obviously the fact it was a great shot that went in and there was some skill proceeding it, obviously, obviously lovely, but he really battled to get that. And I thought his yeah. first half performance was one of the three best games I think we've seen him play for an Arsenal shirt in that first half. I thought he was really, really lively. You're on mute, Paul. I was going to take my hoodie off and then I realised it was too complicated. Mm. That sounds weird. Anyway, um, no, I was just going to say that he won the ball to begin that as well. Mm. So there, it was quite funny reading the Ask blog this morning. He made that point as if nobody else would have noticed it without him saying. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, everything about that goal was brilliant. The the winning, you know, tackling back to win the ball, what he did when he got into the penalty area. Like, that wasn't the sort of thing someone who's not full of confidence does, because why would you even attempt it? Um, just a lovely, lovely goal. And um, I was chatting with AFC Met on Twitter mm -hmm. this morning. Whenever it was, he was like, oh, there's a shame that was all for nothing. And it's like, well, if he can take that and move forward and keep doing things like that, then it won't have been for nothing because we will, you know, the last time I was on this podcast, <laughs> um, you know, not willingly, but writing him off because it's just so mm -hmm. difficult to see a way back for him. But actually, um, he, you know, the, he's had a very good couple of weeks. Yeah, and it's yeah, fair to say, uh, I, I mean, I think I said this before, but I think, even though I think ultimately his best position is coming in from the right, I think at the moment being on the left is better for him because it just, it makes his, it makes things simpler because he's got less options in a way because obviously playing on the right, he's always coming on that, in that, on his left foot, you know. Is he, is he trying to beat a man? Is he trying to get to the byline? Is he trying to get into a shooting position? Is he trying to cross it to the back post? Is he trying to play in field? You know, he's got the whole pitch there and that almost seems to be slightly too much for him at the moment at this level. You know, he's, he's someone that seems to play in a little bit of a bubble anyway. He doesn't, you know, even his, even in recent games when he's been playing better, there's still been large moments, large parts of the game where he's seemed not quite connected to some of his teammates. Less so last night, I thought. Um, and playing on the left just gives him slightly less things to consider. And, and if, if it makes him play this more direct, slightly simplified game, where it's basically, right, your job is to, to run with the ball into the box and either try and create for someone else or, or try and take a shot. I think that helps him. But I think probably the bigger thing that helps him, uh, regardless of flank, and we saw it at times last season, is, is having another creative wide player. I think, I think, I think, I mean, a Smith Rowe will help as well, of course, particularly Smith Rowe is willing to go into wide areas to create position overloads or opportunities for Pepe to go central. But I think just having Saka on the other flank, and we saw it a few times last season when Saka was on the left, just really helps Pepe because he feels less like he has to do, again, it's a bit like the Xhaka thing, he doesn't have to do everything. So he doesn't end up kind of trying to do 10 things at once and falling over and giving the ball away. 
Um, and I think, yeah, it just kind of giving him slightly simpler range of options to, to kind of consider and know that that he can take risks rather than... Because when he plays conservative, that doesn't suit him at all and that tends to lead to bad things happening. So he, you know, he's got to be a player that goes to penetrate, goes to beat people, beat people and then play the ball in from wide or take shots, whichever flank he's taking on, playing on, because those are the things he, he's best at. Trying to link play, trying to play a possession game, trying to play crosses in his right foot. We all know all those things are a little uh, sporadic. At best. I think that, that the fact that uh, Arteta is now starting him instead of putting him uh, on later in the match helps with that as well. Yeah. Because he gets to play the whole match or a large chunk of the match instead of coming on later when we are chasing a result and trying to you know, make something happen as a sub and to get to win the, the starting spot or you know score a late goal or something like that. It's, it also helps with the less, less pressure and giving him more confidence in, because the manager is trusting him, putting him to start the match, and it's definitely shown. Totally agree. <laughs> Any more on that, Paul? No, just hope he keeps it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so does our asset value management. Um, Indeed. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've tipped that around this for fucking long enough. Uh, <laughs> 47 minutes in. <laughs> the referee should have blown up by half time according to the, according to what had actually happened in the game. Decided to let it go on a bit longer. That's just one minor cock up that leads to further cock ups. We have to say, I mean enough people have been saying this to try and deflect attention from, from the officials, that quite what our central defensive partnership was attempting to do at that moment in time, particularly David Louise, but Rob Holding didn't cover himself with glory either. Not good. Not a good sign. Last seconds of the match. Clearly, they were expecting the ref to block when the keeper kicked it out because they were just not in the right positions and didn't react quickly enough. And then the ball was turned over. Yeah, exactly. That that's a, I think that's what happened. What has been happening over the last I don't know, I don't know six, seven, eight seasons. That not not even like waiting for the match to end, but also playing to the whistle. Mm. You have seen our players, you know, sometimes just stop waiting for the referee to, you know, give us something, a call offside, you know, we all remember dear old Mustafi raising his hand that something is offside when it's not. So, I mean, that's just frustrating that it keeps happening, that our players are turning off, just waiting for the match to end when it's not done. It's not, the, the whistle hasn't been blown. You have to be focused, like, two minutes after the whistle has been blown. Yep, I don't think I don't think anyone, <laughs> including any of the armchair coaches listening, would disagree with that. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's definitely a frustrating decision. Penalty, okay, I can see that happening. Uh, it was you know is idiotic mistake from from David Lewis, something that we have mentioned before that can happen for him in in big matches. He has uh, brain fart moments, but uh, I just can't get over the the red card. <laughs> I can see like, for me I need to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Let no. Me just not, sip more beer. <laughs> not by any um It's not a penalty. There's no way that is a penalty. Absolute bullshit decision from a referee who has we've talked about on this podcast before. From the position he was in, he he couldn't have known that Louise made contact. He reacted to the fall, which was pretty dramatic i mean 
a Wolves player falling dramatically. We didn't see. Yeah, that. I know. I know. Portugal, oh. even Portugal player. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, they, they were pox on football. These Portuguese players, I swear to God. <laughs> I, really, um, I really don't like Portuguese national team. Does <laughs> that have to be run through the legal department? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a penalty. Anyone that has played football at any level whatsoever. At the level I play at on Thursday nights, if I wanted a foul for that, I would be laughed out of South West London and back to my home here. <laughs> I, it's, it's not a penalty. He, he hasn't done anything. He's running back towards the goal. That's all he's doing. And, you know, Helen made a very convincing argument for why, by the letter of the law, it was a penalty and red card. That actually relies on David Luiz making a foul. David Luiz did not make a foul last night. It's yeah, a disgusting. No. It's a disgusting decision. Paul, if if he did make a foul, it would be a yellow card. Oh yeah, well, and and that little lovely paradox in the world just... as well. When he got sent off at Chelsea trying to win the ball, and that was something that I don't know if you remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did go yeah, to yeah. town on David Luiz for that because I thought it was stupid. But last night, he hasn't done anything wrong. And I I will fight anyone <laughs> who wants to argue that point with me. He was just not in, in the position he should have been. Just like he should have been, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but that's, from that's a there, red card offence. I mean. From there, he does nothing wrong other than run back towards the goal and the guy draws his foot back to shoot and falls over. Fuck off, is that a penalty? And then insult to injury, we get the red card, and then we get a VAR check that lasts about three seconds when they spent five minutes when we were at home to Crystal Palace last season, and Socrates scores a late winner. Five minutes to disallow a goal for a foul by Callum Chambers when Callum Chambers is the player that got oh, fouled. Yeah. VAR is it's, it's <laughs> fucking bollocks. And they even need to sort it out or get rid of it. But Matthew will tell us, as I can see he's itching <laughs> to come in, that the problem isn't with VAR. It's the pro- it's a problem with the people operating it. And that My would be quietly. right to say too. Not to spike your guns, Matthew. That's okay. I'm quite happy for you to make that point, Paul. I don't think the universe... <laughs> gets any greater benefit from me being we the one that makes bra- it. brace for a long rant, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, that VAR check was like, was there even a VAR check? I We, we all saw Craig Paulson say there had been a check. If there was a check, it was cursor. It's like, oh yeah, he's touching. Well, oh, I'd like okay. to ask you who the VAR official was. Uh, um, I have John heard Moss. a rumour that it was John Moss. Yes. That's true. It was indeed John Moss. John Moss, a referee. I just like, this guy should be nowhere near Arsenal yeah. games. John, well, John, Any John, games. John Moss, <laughs> John Moss should not be an elite-level referee. I've been saying yeah. this for a number of years, and it's not just because his decision-making is appalling, and also that his, he always... How can I put this? He's basically a fucking coward in his decision-making and has been for years. He always chooses the path of least resistance depending on what he thinks the comeback of his decision is going to be. But also, he's he hasn't been fit, fit enough to keep up with play on a football pitch for seven or eight years. You know, I mean, the guy was probably too busy chowing into his fucking donuts 
to be to spend any time looking at it because frankly he does not have the physique or athletic capacity to be a top level referee he barely has the athletic capacity to be a referee at non-league level it's an embarrassment the amount of times you see him refereeing games and he's huffing and puffing 20 30 yards behind the play and if we've also seen that with him in the var decision box that his he has a, a blanket policy which is always agree with the on-pitch referee as quickly as humanly possible. And he's done it game after game for different teams and different teams. He's basically not fit for purpose. And the fact that he is still a top-level referee tells you all you need to know about the match officials organisation headed by Mike Riley and how incompetently run it is and what a dubiously uh, organised group of people it is. Now, before I go into a full-on discussion of this, I'm just going to read the law. Okay, so 12.11. Denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity when in the penalty area. Where a player denies the opposing team a goal or an obvious goal-scoring opportunity by deliberate handball offence, the player is sent off wherever the offence occurs. Where a player commits an offence against an opponent within their own penalty area which denies an opponent obvious goal-scoring opportunity and the referee awards a penalty kick, the offending player is cautioned unless... 1. The offence is holding, pulling or pushing or... The offending player does not make an attempt to play the ball, or there is no possibility for the player making the challenge to play the ball, or the offence is one which is punishable by a red card wherever it occurs on the field of play, e.g. serious foul play, violent conduct, etc. In all the above circumstances, the player is sent off. Now, so lots of people have come out, including uh, esteemed uh, Peter Walton and Dermot Gallagher, uh, I feel slightly let down by Dermot Gallagher because I actually thought he was a decent ref. Peter Walton was a fucking useless referee, so his opinion ain't worth a bag of shit. But they were coming out talking about, giving amusingly, between the two of them, giving completely different contradictory reasons why the referee was right to send the player off and why VAR couldn't overturn it. Peter Walton made a lot of comments about... Um, about uh, basically quoting the letter of the law and how the referee had no choice but to send the player off and uh, how VR didn't have the choice to overturn him and and also then he started waffling on about precedent and David Luiz has done this before and he should know better which is like you're a referee uh, judging by reputation is not your job that's what Craig Pawson got wrong he guessed on the basis of a player's reputation when he fundamentally could not have seen what was happened which has been proved on video now Dermot Gallagher on the other hand he was he was saying that the reason the VAR couldn't overturn it he wouldn't he wouldn't say the referee's on pitch decision was wrong he just went on to say VAR couldn't overturn it because VAR couldn't categorically prove that the referee had made a mistake because essentially VAR couldn't categorically prove uh, whether there was contact, how much contact there was, and who initiated the contact. So because it couldn't tell that, it couldn't contradict the referee, so the referee's decision stood. Now these two things are fundamentally contradictory positions, because the first presents the law as an absolute in which the referee has no option but to take a certain course of action when a certain chain of events occurs. And that those chain of events, by by definition, must clearly be defined in absolute terms. Dermot Gallagher's position uh, is that uh, that the interpretation was of the referee had to be supported because it could not be completely contradicted by contradicted by video evidence. I, and I've seen lots of people talking on the internet about this, and journalists, and all these various, and, and the likes of Alan Fucking Shearer for what his opinions were telling us why it had to be a red card and it was the letter of the law and the thing is all this is predicated on a fundamental logical fallacy that these people are too fucking stupid 
to understand. The logical fallacy being that the definition of the law as it's written down outlines certain specific things for which the player has to be sent off. Now, people are saying that because there was no attempt to play the ball, or the possibility to, to play the ball, it was a red card. But they miss the key part of that sentence, which is no possibility for the player making the challenge to play the ball. Now, I don't think anyone could possibly interpret that someone running without changing their stride pattern is making a challenge. Also, just to prove that the idea of applying this as an absolute is complete fucking horseshit, that is still a match official in the moment making a judgment call about A, whether it's a challenge, B, whether that challenge could have led to someone trying to get the ball, C, whether that challenge could have been someone attempting to try and get the ball. So, so in that situation, the referee has made a judgment call that both David Luiz is making a challenge, when clearly he's not, and, it's a and he's trying to make a challenge where he knows he can't get the ball. Now, if you are saying that he's making a challenge there, then the movement he makes must be the, f the precursor to a challenge because his legs aren't moving outside of a normal stride pattern and he hasn't got any hands or any other body part touching the opponent. So, by that basis alone, you are then saying that if he think he's making a challenge, you are making an assumption about what he's about to do after that point once he is able to actually initiate a different physical movement. Either way, it, the match official is making an assumption based on things that cannot be known. So if it's that basis and you're relying on interpretation, it simply cannot, by definition, be an absolute. And the law cannot be applied in an absolute manner. So these fucking idiots telling us these things not only don't understand the law, not only keep missing out a key part of the law, but also don't understand logic. Now, frankly, if you're too stupid to work that out, you shouldn't be anywhere near this fucking shit. Right, moving on from that. <laughs> that was your mic drop moment, mate. That, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, but that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's what I said, although more uh. eloquently <laughs> and in more detail, that David Luiz didn't do anything. He was running back towards his goal. He hasn't made a challenge, which is where I think he I can see Helen's argument that we had earlier today. But it's where I disagree with it. Well, it's also people were suggesting that he, you know, that it was a point of. We all know that David Luiz in the past has <clears throat> accidentally, <clears throat> deliberately run across a player's stride pattern to try and impede them in some way without making an obvious foul to try and get away with it. But in this situation, David Luiz does not alter his stride pattern except for to try and deviate out of a position of making contact, presumably to try and you know see if he can get behind the, the goalkeeper to clear the ball off the line or make some other clearance. He's actually just at that point started to try and avoid making contact. But you can see by his direction of travel, he's actually moving out of the arc of the defensive player. And also... By this, by that virtue, you're, you as a match official are saying that a defender cannot pursue an attacker who's running through on goal. They are not allowed to pursue an attacker unless they take a really wide arc, which would defend the, defeat the point of them even attempting to do it in the first place. It's a farce. And, and, and I mean, I'd just like to, you know, it's quite funny because I was having, obviously, discussions with people on Twitter about this last night. <laughs> and... Um, People were kind of telling me, but oh, these refs say it's, and but then I said, I said, well, the only ref I want to hear 
is one who's got nothing to lose, who is independent, has their own column without having to be friends with the Premier League officials, isn't one of Mike Riley's mates, and isn't relying on any, on any of them to get to have a job in the future. So the one I trust, apart from some of those that are long retired and therefore probably a little bit out of touch with the newest laws, is Mark Clattenburg. Because Clattenburg was uh, ref when this law was introduced. He was still a top-level ref. He's got no loyalty to Mike Riley and his cronies because basically they fucked him over several times. <laughs> and I basically <laughs> censored him for like not getting the right form of transport home so he could see his kids uh, and, and shit like that. And he said very clearly it's a yellow card. And he's saying it's because there is a degree of essentially interpretation and common sense. Now, lots of people have been trying to tell us that there is no rule for interpretation, but that's, as I've already outlined, a clear logical fallacy which doesn't stand up to any form of scrutiny. Now, the thing is also, interestingly, another person who said that this wasn't uh, a red card was Shaka Hislop, who may seem like not particularly important, but he was involved in discussions at the time this rule was introduced as part of the group of people consulted. And he said that the incident last night was fundamentally not what this law was designed to dealt with, and the expectation is it will be applied with that understanding. So essentially, uh, the referees jumped and made the most negative possible assumption about a situation he can't actually see. And then it's been compounded by uh, VAR official refusing to take any responsibility. And again, this argument that VAR is that when well, he couldn't, he couldn't 100% contradict uh, the ref, so he can't overrule him. What about the magical video cameras by the side of the pitch? You could get someone to look at it. Yeah. Wow. You mean you could use the technology that's vast amounts of money has been invested in, and there's been a huge hullabaloo about how it's now mandatory to be used. No, oh, we couldn't. But it was that. the end of the half. I mean, he wanted to go off. So why was he going and look <laughs> at the monitor? I mean, it's just the Arsenal. No. Someone had brewed his cup of tea. Um... <laughs> the worst thing about John Moss as well is also, apart from being incompetent on pitch and on VAR, is he's one of the few referees that's actually played football at like a vaguely decent level, right? Non-league level, but he actually played, you know, football, uh, to, you know, he's in a couple of academies. He's like someone who should have some fucking idea how football works. A lot of them are bloody accountants and shit, so why the fuck would they know? <laughs> they, just, they know no more than any of the rest of us, except for the fact they can read the laws and then misinterpret them because their logical understanding is lacking. I, yeah, well, I, I just think, for me, like, I'm sure for the Wolves fan who'd, who'd watched their team be annihilated at home by us last night, it was probably all very funny and very welcome. But is this the sort of game we won where that is not only a penalty but a red card? It's just ridiculous. I mean... If that happened up, up the other end of the pitch, well, it wouldn't happen for us. We all know that. Um, and I don't really have any other points to make on it. I just like that in a million years cannot be a red card. If you want to give well, a penalty... Well, again, it's looking... Want, sorry. No, I was just saying, if you want to give a penalty for that, again, the... Con Contact is super, super minimal, and in my opinion, not enough. 
Um, and also, actually, just on the theme of contacts in the penalty area, Bukayo Saka earlier in the first yeah. half was smashed off the ball. Mm. Um, no attempt made to play the ball, but that's just football, apparently. that That's fine to do that to a 19-year-old kid who hasn't got enough upper body strength yet, apparently. Um, but there was more contact made on Saka than David Luiz made last, last night. Yes, and we've seen, and again, this was so clearly a reputational sending off because we've seen multiple occasions where there has been incidental contact and nothing's given, or accidental contact, and um, and a player has been given penalised of the penalty, but no red card has been offered. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, and the other thing is just for us and David Lewis particularly. Sorry, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> referees are so quick to get red cards out against us. It is insane. I mean, I know Leno, and we'll probably get onto it, Leno deserved his red cards. I mean, you can't do what he did. I, yeah, it was just a, that was just a space brain moment, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, he missed, <laughs> I, he's a little unlucky because he misjudges the flight of the ball, but you can't do that. But yeah. to have two players sent off in a game like last night where there wasn't really... A bad tackle made. It just mm. again, I go back to what you know. Is this the sort of game we want? We've all seen all those images going around Twitter, going not a red card, not a red card, not a red card. Yeah. Well, quite. Sadio Mane two minutes in at Anfield smashes Kieran Tierney in the face. Oh no, nothing to see there. Trent Alexander Arnold does it to Bakai Saka, smashed him halfway up his shin. That's just football. Um, and obviously, Granite Jacker at the weekend, we've talked about it. It's insane. It's like um, there's an, an invisibility cloak on players when they play Arsenal. Yves Basuma uh, last season at Brighton, eight fouls, no cards, or maybe got a yellow card. Uh, Jorginho for Chelsea. And who's the other one that I'm forgetting? Andre Ayew, Crystal Palace last season, eight fouls. Not a card to be seen. Oh, and guess what? He scores the equaliser. Um, fuck off, basically. <laughs> Just fuck off with this bullshit. Uh, the only other thing I want to say before we move on from, from this, and I let Anita say whatever she wants to, is, um, you know, Pawson has previous with us. He's the one that sent Hidia and Ketia off against Leicester last season. His relationship with Arsenal is... I don't know if he. I don't think he goes looking for decisions, but he always chooses the least charitable interpretation possible uh, from an Arsenal perspective. But um, one thing I wanted to touch on, and I've mentioned it before briefly, but so I won't go on for very long. But you know, the org- basic the problem is the organisation of the referees uh, in England is totally non-accountable. It is an totally independent body, uh, which you can understand because you don't want people to put, apply pressure to it. But unfortunately, it also means uh, there is no effective external regulation. And as Arsene Wenger said uh, in 2019, you know, how many English referees are going to the World Cup? Basically, none. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a problem for what is supposedly the best and richest league in the world. And ultimately, what Mike Riley has ever seen is a diminishing of standards, despite professionalism and despite referees now being paid. What he's also overseen is uh, the biggest geographical bias in refereeing and pointing since referees basically first started becoming uh, you know, defined as a group in the top flight. How many referees from London do you think there's been, or from or based in London, do you think there's been in the last 20 years? Three. Any I'm, of including, I'm including Hertfordshire in London. Oh, okay. Well, if you're including Hertfordshire, then, then yeah, that changes things slightly. <laughs> 
absolutely no idea. Four or five? Uh, depending on depending on which time frame of a referee's career you apply, the answer is either one or two. Um, wow. The whole southeast of England, I think it might be four. Uh, I'll have to double check that in the last 20 years. Whereas uh, from a com combination of Yorkshire, uh, Lancashire and Merseyside, there are any, any given time at least half of all the Premier League referees over the last 20 years, at least half have come from those areas, uh, generally more. Um, generally about a third of them come from within a 20, 25 mile radius. Um, <laughs> Just some food for thought there about perhaps why certain teams uh, get a differential treatment. And again, there is no comeback to any of this. There is no, there is no capacity for anyone to draw attention to these inconsistencies, and there is no consequence. Which is why we're seeing you know, people like John Moss, who are both incompetent and overweight, still continuing refereeing at the top level when they are clearly just they just wouldn't get a job doing that in another country. They wouldn't get a gig in a, you know in another top footballing nation. I want to mention that Lee is building a page on, on dailycanon.com that will list referee involvements and all the things that they did for, for, for us, against us in, in the matches. And yeah, it should be up very soon. So people can go there and check that. I mean, stats are just... It, it's even more shocking when you you know see things listed, how we had against Burnley, we had uh, five fouls and two yellows and one red. While Burnley had eleven fouls and one yellow, I mean, just oh, that's quite that's quite good going for an Arsenal game. <laughs> um, obviously, I got to have my epic referee rant. Um, <laughs> Did you? I missed that. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, when was that? <laughs> I mean, one thing I found quite funny is after yesterday, apparently, uh, did you hear see the news about Southampton? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. That was another appalling decision. I guess the only comfort for them is that they were already six nil down at the time it was made. <laughs> so for yeah, those listeners, like, come, coming after the Aston Villa match as well. Yeah, exactly. So for those listeners that don't know, Southampton have formally requested that uh, Mike Dean and Lee Mason do not officiate their games going forward. Now I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, from an Arsenal perspective, that might be tricky because it'd be more of a case of finding out who'd be allowed to do it. Um, <laughs> Certainly, Lee Mason is one uh, that uh, very few clubs speak about with any generosity. Um, <laughs> he's he's another official that has just like never been up to it. You know, M Mike Dean, we all know, is a egomaniac who loves showing off, and if the game's on telly, then you're more likely to get some mad shit happening. Um, but we have actually seen Mike Dean occasionally be like a really good referee. Yeah, I think the upsetting thing for Southampton last night. Um, yeah, they've had to play a match <laughs> with 10 men because of the stupidity of one of their players. But to see Mike Dean make that call and then go over to the video monitor and look at it and come back and stay with a decision that surely he knows is wrong. It's, it's, well, I'll say that. It was funny watching the game. So we we had a Skype call for our game and I was so cross after our game that I was like, lads, I can't talk to you. I'm going to have to go because Steve kept saying, oh, well, Louise deserved it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, so I went and calmed down for about 10 minutes. So I thought, oh, do you know what? It'll 
you know, it'll be Joe was on a call with my mum, so I thought I might as well. So we sit through this game and we watch it. And um, as soon as that incident happened, I'm like, that is not, that is never a penalty. And it's definitely not a red card. And Chris was on the calls like, that's a red card. That's a red card. And then, then when you see the replays, he's like, oh, maybe not. But Mike, Mike Dean sticks with it. You just think... You know, we've said it before on this podcast. Surely, when you send a player off, you've got to be sure that he deserves to be sent off because it's quite a big thing in a football match. Um, but the referees are like, <laughs> "See ya, bye, have a have a nice early shower." Um, oh, it's hateful. It really is. I I feel quite not just angry about it but disillusioned because i just mm. you can't see particularly with mike riley in charge it's like the fucking shield i don't know if either of you have ever watched the tv show the shield it's about a bunch of gangbuster cops in la but they're on the take so they go out doing all this stuff about busting gangs but really they're doing it to line their own pockets and i'm not suggesting that that is what's happening but it just feels like, as you said, Matthew, the referees are not accountable to anyone and they just keep making these ridiculous <laughs> decisions. And, you know, fundamentally, yes, we should have scored more than one goal in that first half yesterday. But Wolves won a game. They had no right to win and they won it because of the referee. That is a fact. Well, I mean, there's two things I've posted at the time, which is, I mean, one was essentially part of the problem with this referee organisation as well as uh, there are people who are, who are running VAR who basically aren't trained to be video officials. So they try and run VAR the same way they do things on the pitch. Uh, which of course leaves them open to their same flaws that they may have as individuals. You know, it's, it's already clear that some of the VAR officials are better than others. You know, uh, some of them can't. Some of them are better on VAR than others, and are better at intervening where it's necessary or not intervening unnecessarily. Um, you know, so that and that's something which it seems they were woefully inadequately prepared for. You know, in, in other sports, with where there is video officiating, they have specialist video officiating people. You know. Uh, or they have people that at least that's a large part of their primary remit rather than just being bolted on as a kind of extra job of description. Oh, here's an, you know, a bit like someone in the office. Oh, well, if you do the IT as well, we'll give you an extra couple of grand, <laughs> um, which is how it sort of feels. And then, and then aside from that, it's, there is this, because there is that autonomy and because the power of the two or three people who head up the referees is absolute in terms of applying who gets to do what jobs, there, there is a, a greater loyalty to the club of referees than there is to doing their job because it's in their better. It's, it's more. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying they go out to cheat. I would never say that. You know, some of them definitely have biases, but humans have biases. You know, that's that's a consequence of having human referees. But I think there's a number of them that have a greater loyalty to the organisation and their colleagues than they do to the actual role of being a match official. And I think that trend is, from what I've seen, seems to be getting worse, which has to, again, uh, stop at the door of those in charge. Any thoughts, Anita? I think the, the the frustrating thing is, for me, like, I watch a lot of cricket. I know you yep. do as well. And I come from a rugby background. Like, my family are all fucking big egg-chasing bastards. <laughs> Love you all, really, if you're listening. <laughs> but um, 
you know, when the the VAR is done, you're being told on the telly and in the ground what's happening. And football is like the referees are so up their own asses that they can't, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter for people being in the stadium at the moment because there aren't many, but, you know, on the telly, at, at least give us some insight into why a decision's being made because <laughs> there's been so, and I keep thinking about the, uh, the Socrates one at home to Palace last year. Well, after five minutes of looking for a foul, a, a way, a reason to disallow this Arsenal goal, they found the most spurious bullshit reason to disallow it. I'm not sure that actually talking through it on the VAR is going to change the decision itself, although it might have done. If you, if you, you have to be well, it would change something because if you have to be able to explain something, yeah. it forces you to interrogate your decision right so there you go so why is the var conversation not being made available to people because you know if you're going to fundamentally change the result of a game the outcome of a game um you know there should there should be an explanation for that remember you know, the, penalty the, the, sorry Sorry, mate. I was just saying, you know, the Lacazette offside last night is cut and dried. He's offside. Okay, yeah. we can see that. We move on. No one complains. Um, but, you know, Southampton last night, David Luiz last night. I mean, the only, thing the only thing I'll say just before I hand over to Anita is the way that the laws of football are written, you know, VIR works perfectly for black and white decisions. But, of course... All the rest of the decisions and most of the laws are interpretive, which is why this bullshit about absolutism lesser of the law is complete nonsense because the laws are fundamentally interpretive and retards. But anyway, um, because they're interpretive, you are never going to get a, a total consistent conclusion, which is also why explaining them is more difficult. Now, I don't say that's an excuse because if you can't explain something, you don't have a fund you don't have a good enough knowledge of it to be able to be applying it. I mean, that's basically, you know, just to use an example, I'm doing some work occasionally for the Judicial Appointments Commission involved in, which is partly why I've been able to interrogate these laws, because, uh, you know, uh, and some of that work is involved in assessing members of the judiciary or potential members of the judiciary. And I can't go into any detail because then I'll be breaking some bloody secrets actually down. But essentially, part of any process of their decision-making that they have to do well, they're in, that, that you know they're looking for is people who can not just make a decision and hopefully get the decision right but also offer some explanation for decision because you know in a legal case if you fuck something up and you don't tell anyone why they're going to be straight onto a court of appeal <laughs> wasting more public money and causing loads of problems but because match officials don't have any there's no consequence at all there's no negative outcome for anyone involved in their profession if they get it wrong. Sorry, Anita. <laughs> what do you mean no negative outcome? They are sent to the championship for a few matches and they, they are back. <laughs> or they are fourth official or something like that. That isn't that bad. I mean, I, I think someone on Twitter rem reminded me of the... There, there are qu quite a few threads going on on Twitter uh, today and, and last night as well with uh, all the mistakes that referees did against Arsenal and against other teams as well at Southampton mm. uh, too. And there was that the penalty on Socrates that wasn't given. When they said the explanation that his 
the shirt pull wasn't in the triangle shape. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. I mean, even when they do have kind of you know explanation, it's that definitely doesn't make sense. It's really ridiculous and just oh. yeah. I mean, you both mentioned that we shouldn't be talking about the referees, and that's something that uh, I mean, you expect them to know their their job, to go out and do their job, and then. You are still disappointed, even with all the, this this help, all this talk about the help and everything that has been happening, and all the pressure, all the you know, good criticism from from the public, from the fans, from the clubs and the, and managers as well. I mean, Wenger started it, and I think probably Ferguson uh, complained about referees mm. at at some point, <laughs> but still, they definitely haven't learned anything, and it's just I. Kind of, I, I was pro VAR when when it was introduced. You know, I think, especially the part where referee gets to you know go to the side monitor and mm-hmm. see the situation himself and make decision. But I don't see it really working well as as is shown now in, in Premier League because the refs are generally shit. There will be shit with all the technology that will help them, and it's being showcased in that in literally. Every single round, not just against Arsenal, but against all other teams. Yeah, and that's uh, the reason why I'm still pro VAR is simply because ultimately you will eventually get a situation where there are match officials who are more adept at understanding how to use VAR in a way that makes sense rather than, and there may be an evolution in the process so that VAR officials have greater independence from match officials. So you're not just having people wanting to back up their mates which is essentially what's happening, yeah. um, which is why there are so many things that, that VIR just chooses to ignore, even though they're clearly contentious decisions. Or occasionally you get someone in a VAR booth overstepping the mark and trying to make a decision without giving the referee the opportunity to check whether it's right or not, which is, again, it's just, it's just being applied incorrectly. It's just people being technically bad at an aspect of their job, even if you ignore the, the interpretation. or It's why I said, you know, last night, Craig Pawson, yeah, it's annoying because he's guessed, but VAR should make it safer for them to guess because they know there's a second look. So I don't have quite as much anger towards him, even though I don't particularly like him as a referee, but he's not one of my, on my, on my hit list, as it were. But, um, but John Moss is someone, you know, he always abdicates responsibility in that position. So you've got, and of course, VAR impacts the way people, people referee. The referees, are more likely to make a, a bold a bold decision because they know there's a second look, which, okay, that's logical. Like, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with that. The problem is, is the second look doesn't function because the second look is being applied by people who aren't, aren't fulfilling their role. They're not taking their role. They're not giving their role the weight it has. They're seeing it as like a being, being like being, you know, in the backup room, smoking fags and drinking tea, like you're saying, you, can, you know, the emotional equivalent of, when really they should know that they are ultimately a key part of the arbitration team and they have to take that role as seriously as if they were on the pitch. And there's so many times when they sort of just dodge responsibility, which is like, but, you know, until some of these old lot get pensioned off and punted out and we get a, a, a new set who are at least, at least as au fait with video refereeing as on pitch refereeing, it's just going to continue. Um, I'm really glad that, that the club are appealing the red card. Yeah, I think that we might might get uh, a win here. Well, I don't think you'll get the the extra game ban for Spurious, <laughs> G- given the British media up in arms about disagreeing about it. But it's still, is, even if it does get 
rescind it and it doesn't mean anything because it was a really massive decision in the game that we have been winning and been playing well and it, it directly influenced the match, you know. I mean, I just want to make one slightly separate point and then we'll go to you, Paul, super quick, that actually one thing that's a real shame as well is we, you know, we're talking about referees, the whole inter- you know, referees and VR were trending all over the fuck Twitter and that's even before the Man United game. Uh, millions of people around the world losing their shit about it. I've just gone on a massive rant about it again. But even if we hadn't won the game, it would have been a game that had been remen- rem- primarily remembered from a brilliant goal from Pepe and an absolute fucking worldie from Moutinho that he's been able to, always been able to pull out every so often. And it would, you know, a, maybe a hard-fought draw with Wolves having a good second half on the back of a brilliant goal. Okay, good game, two great goals, some great play. That's what we take out of it. And there'd be a lot more positivity, whereas now it's basically anger or schadenfreude. <laughs> which are two slightly less healthy emotions to, to <laughs> take away from something. And that, again, is down to the, you know, the match officials negatively impacting on the very uh, thing they're supposed to be protecting. Um, sorry, what are you going to say, Paul? <laughs> I remember now. Um... <laughs> sorry! Maybe sorry. something... Uh, Maybe something about the second half, I mean. <laughs> Are you going to pretend? Uh, well, I have got something on that. I think I was going to make the point that if someone had told me in October 2004, on the night that God cried and we were heinously cheated out of our unbeaten run by Mike Riley, that he would still be fucking with our lives 17 years later, I would have, uh, well, I wouldn't have laughed, actually. I would have cried. Um, which is what I feel like doing now. Um, but on the, <laughs> on the second half, I was so pissed off at half time that um, yeah. we got a takeaway delivered last night and it arrived at half time. Yes. So I didn't actually tell anyone, but I muted my computer and I went off to eat. <laughs> and I came back. <laughs> I came back 15 minutes later. And the uh, first thing that I heard was Steve saying, oh, Wolves will just shut up shop now. So um, I was like, they haven't scored already, have they? And of <laughs> course they had. Um, I didn't see the goal until after the game. It's just like, so on top of the referee te- taking temporary leave of his senses, some sort of act of God befalls <laughs> us at Molyneux. And like, I mean... You know, I think what we have to take out of last night is that everything that could have gone against us last night went against us. We finished the game with nine men. I think in some ways we were lucky (laughs) to return to my favourite team that we were playing against the Portuguese team effectively and they weren't really interested in winning 5-1. They just wanted to win. Um, Mm. So they didn't really go for us. And I think, I hope actually that that sort of stands us in good stead on Saturday lunchtime. We're not going to Villa Park with confidence shattered out off the back of a mauling. We're going there knowing that despite everything that went wrong, we, you know, we, we stood up and uh, not that we're yeah. going to get into cliches here, but we did stand up and you know fight for the shirt, if you like. Yeah, and we have to say that you know, yes, Wolves didn't exactly tr- try their hardest to press home their advantage, particularly once they went two one up. Um, but you know, the uh, it wasn't as if it was a 
it was a rearguard action from Arsenal. We were under lots of pressure. It wasn't as if they had lots of chances. I mean, they, you know, their chances were the penalty and, uh, and, and just a, a shot from incredible range. Um, you know, there wasn't within the game itself there. Uh, I mean, Wolves' XG was 1.5 and given that most of that was from the penalty mm. you know the, and we and bearing in mind we spent half the game with 10 men and a quarter of the game with 9 men you know and uh, we had to take Thomas Partey off because he was on the yellow card and the referee probably would have sent him <laughs> off as well yeah even that or he might have been make a, a few uh, reckless, reckless tackles and have the game you know the yellow card he got was like you know we've been wanting someone in the team to do something like that yeah that was definitely yeah (laughs) one for the team that that, that was one that that's one that flamini would have been proud of i think (laughs) um yeah definitely they didn't show so much i mean i've seen comments like uh arsenal imploded uh, in the second half it was they scored really a fantastic goal and up until the Leno red card, I think that we were closer to equalizing than they were to, you know, scoring another uh, or keeping I the goal. Yeah, quite no, great. I, to say, I, I totally agree with that. Arsenal implosion, blah blah blah. It's like well, what game were you watching? Yeah, yeah. We didn't implode, the referee imploded. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the implosion moment was Leno basically losing his shit and getting sent off. Ending almost ending our chance of getting anything. Although it's worth bearing in mind that they were relied on a good block to stop Aubameyang equalising with nine men who were really late on. So you know, even yeah, and, the- and that moment when uh, Hector Bellerin was running down the line at was ninety first of what minute? Mm. That actually shows really nice that I think that they might build on the good things rather than the you know the chaos that happened uh, during the match. Yeah, and it's and ultimately you can you can complain about the defending that allowed the situation for the penalty to develop, quite right, and you can say we didn't maximise in taking our chances, but ultimately, what beat us despite the red card and despite everything else, was an absolute wonder goal, and sometimes that's going to happen. You know, some it, eventually a few times a season a midfielder will plant one in the top corner from distance. You know, yeah. particularly if you've got less men and therefore can't close down. But also, the, it was the shot was from so far out; it was so perfectly struck. I mean, it was just one of those goals you have to go, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can't really goal, complain yeah. about. You know, it's just that's what it is. It's just a brilliant, brilliant strike. Um, yeah, just like it happens when some uh, worldy save happens against Arsenal. Yeah. it's just you know, you did your best, and goalkeeper was just really fantastic and saved the goal. So I, I don't I don't see any negative impact. I mean, I do think that. I mean, what do we think about the decision to, to about the substitutions we made? I mean, taking Lacazette yeah, off, for instance, to bring on to bring on Gabriel is. is yeah, I've seen lots of lots of negative comments on on the substitutions that did, that Arteta wasn't really didn't do quite well. But I mean, Lacazette has been playing a lot over. The last uh, few few weeks, and uh, it was raining really heavily. <laughs> yes, it was. And I, I'm not sure if if something else would have done something better. Well, I, I guess what I would say about it is the substitution worked. It's just <laughs> Wolf scored an act of God goal, and that's yeah. you know that's. 
Yeah. I, know, what, what, what can Arteta do about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I quite like the substitution simply because, uh, you know, Lacazette was having a, a tough guy at the time. I mean, you know, Wolves were playing two centre-halves, you know, Willy Bolly's a man mountain and, and Kilmer was coming inside at times. And so Lacazette was already struggling to get much out of them physically. Mm. And that was only going to get worse as he was going to get more separated from the midfield. So the idea of being able to play this slightly more fluid line, particularly as all our joy had come down the flanks anyway, I, I had no problem with. Um, I wasn't so sure about the decision to take Pepe off and uh, for Aubameyang, and, and I might have taken Smith-Rowe off with that because ultimately that had slightly stopped working in terms of us having this fluidity. And, and I still still think our best way of getting the walls would have been having pace cut getting in behind. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think I'm. I wasn't even sure if Aubameyang was completely ready to to be there. I mean, it was really great to see him on the bench and in the team again as well. But mm. I mean, he had what like one proper training or something like that. Yeah, yeah. When was yeah? I mean, I think that it was like more of a desperate substitution to you know have captain inspire and. Uh, what what Paul said, uh, how is Aubameyang, uh, uh, if he was uh, playing against uh, United, he would score. He would be in that position, he would score uh, Villian's chance or something like that. Maybe that's something what Arteta was hoping for, that we will go once on the other side and Aubameyang will be there and score the goal. But yeah, I, I'm, I wasn't really too happy about that as well. I think that Pepe didn't deserve to be taken off. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the risk of turning it into an echo chamber um, I guess <laughs> the, the only thing I'd say Pepe has been out in the cold for a while and he has all of a sudden played quite a lot of well quite a lot he, he's featured very heavily in the last four matches mm. um, so maybe there was a, the, there's an element of protecting the player Um but yeah, I, I think generally I, I, I agree with the point that perhaps Smith Rowe might have been a better yeah. player to bring off. But ultimately, you know, the manager calls it as he sees it on the bench, and um, and ultimately, Bert Leno rendered it in sort of <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah, and then we yeah. had the exchange student in goal, <laughs> who made a couple of decent saves with his feet, but then also had a yeah. couple of not so good moments. Yeah, is Matt and he was being rewarded with dropping out of the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, this might be the last of you play for us. Go on, son. <laughs> is Matt Ryan? Do we know if he's likely to be available for Saturday? We don't know. They're, yeah, they're they're, 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 they're unsure as yet. Because I think um, that is like it's really unfortunate timing, isn't it? Like this kid yeah, gets thrown into the Premier League. Um, <laughs> And does so we do things, Paul. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> he does, so he does quite well, apart from the uh, pass out for a corner. Um, <laughs> and then the next morning he gets bombed out of the Europa League squad. And then on on Saturday lunchtime, we go to Villa Park. And, um, and we get to take a look at what you could have won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, even for me, I'm sort of beyond that now. The decision, Emmy made his decision, the club yeah. made their decision, and it's one of those. But it's it's going to be um, 
I, I mean, if the game goes well for us, then great. But I have to say that sitting here and now, Wednesday evening, I, I'm quite worried about Saturday lunchtime. Um, I think it it could, um, you know, if that goalkeeper gets put under any sort of pressure, I think would, and he will be. I think it's going to be a struggle. Already looking forward to him getting Speaking out candidly. by Holly, Holly Watkins from across. <laughs> despite the fact that he's allowed to use his hands. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, just sort of related, we look at Villa and, and sort of related to Europa League squads and what have you. Obviously, uh, last episode, we talked about some departures and arrivals and uh, they managed to squeeze in some more before the end of the transfer window. Mm-hmm. Transfer deadline day! Yeah. Uh, we didn't get our reserve <laughs> left back, um, which is a shame, but then when they people start linking you to Patrick Van Aanholt as your only plausible option. It seems like... Mm. <laughs> uh, Van Aanholt, so, you know, he's homegrown and he's quite good attacking fullback, but Jesus, defensively, he is cock on a stick. <laughs> Does anyone think we might have gone a bit too far with this? Just a little bit. In terms of what, letting people out? Yeah, we're in the next. We've got three fullbacks. And Cam Chambers back. He can cover right back. Is he still alive? He's, al- <laughs> he's alive, he's fully back in training. He's, is, actually, is, he's, is actually, he, he's not matched fit, but he's fit again. Has he been on the bench? Because I know he played, was it in the Carl, uh, Europa League he came on? Or yeah. He, 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 he yeah. has definitely played, I remember seeing him. But then it's like, um, he's disappeared. Yeah, he will be like a new signing, you know, Paul. He's always back and... It's Boston always like that. Go. We will have, House. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've seen people saying that Arsenal had the, the best January transfer window out of all the Premier League club. I wouldn't go that far. It's really nice to have offloaded the, you know, that wood that was <laughs> in the in the team for quite a while. And yeah, I'm so so glad that Mustafi managed to get the thank you Schalke forever for taking Kolasinac and Mustafi <laughs> that's really nice uh, although that nice allowed day. Liverpool to strengthen but I wouldn't go that far and say no just saying it allowed <laughs> Liverpool to strengthen so with every, every silver lining there's a cloud yeah but as you said yeah. Matthew, we didn't get the cover we it's really worrying to see what hap- what is happening with the Tierney because they aren't telling us much so I guess that's sort of what I was getting at, really. I mean, I know Maitland-Niles didn't cover himself in glory in his uh, outing against Newcastle in the Cup. But to have just... A, like, Chambers isn't a natural right-back. I know that's where we saw him, but I, he's <laughs> not a natural no. right-back. We all know that. Um so the idea that Suarez can cover both fullback positions, particularly when one of them is injured and, you know, who knows, uh, not to scare anyone, but are we looking at a Santi Cazorla situation? Um, <laughs> Don't just in case I haven't, go there. <laughs> just in case I haven't depressed everyone enough tonight. Um, it just worries me. And I think, like, actually, I think with Ainsley, every, everyone that on, who listens to this and you guys, you know how much I love him. Ainsley's move to me feels very much like the prelude to a move. Um, I think Joe Willock will go to Newcastle and benefit from getting regular game time, assuming that he does, and probably come back to the squad. Um, but 
I, I just think with Ainsley, there have been so many ups and downs and peaks and troughs in this guy's Arsenal career. Um, surely he was worth keeping around. And the fact that Arteta decided he, that he could do without him doesn't bode well for me. It, we could always play Chaka on left back. It's been done before. <laughs> or, 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 or we could echo that great team of the mid-2000s in an emergency crisis, play Pablo Maria at left back. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a tribute to the long-lost Pascal Seagan. Um, but but in, all, in all seriousness, uh, yeah, I mean, it does leave us a bit light. I, I assumed that Maitland-Niles going out would be dependent on us getting someone who could play left-back in, even if it's just on loan. Um, but I guess it's the squad numbers and the homegrown players, you know, it's given us much less flexibility. So it meant the only people we could bring in could be homegrown players. And of course, teams in the Premier League aren't generally aren't up for selling first, you know, decent players in the middle of the season because they don't need the money, unlike a lot of overseas teams. Um, I'm a bit more optimistic about the loans. I mean, I, I think obviously the same as Willock. I think he needs games. We all know he needs games. He needs to find out what his position is and learn how to play a position rather than just being someone who has lots of good attributes. But I think Maitland-Niles, I think, I think the reason why I think it's good is because I think he'll play in midfield at West Brom. And so it'll start answering that question, that itch that's been there waiting to be scratched in his career for like five fucking years now is that, you know, he sees himself as a central midfielder. That's what he was earmarked for. Uh, we know there are flaws in his game in that position which make playing him at the top level risky. Um, you know, particularly things to do with concentration or whatever. Um, but at the same time, he's never had the opportunity to play more than a game here or a game there in that position. And at least this loan to West Brom will... Well, there's multiple advantages. One is he'll get to find out... We'll get to find out what he is as a central midfielder. Is he the player that we've, we've seen be you know, not great in central midfielder and some pre-season friendlies? Or is he the guy that, you know, can he do what he did against Dundalk against better teams where he strolls around looking like the game's too easy for him and he can just do whatever he wants? Or like he played against Paul Pogba at Old Trafford those years ago, you know. Which which of these things is he? And if and if he proves himself to be a really good central midfielder with some games under his belt, great. Then we've got a, a, a good player in a position of need returning to the club. If he proves himself to be not very good there, then that will kind of define him as actually your much better uh, defensive athletic fullback role. But I think it will, I think part, I think a big problem with Maitland Niles' career over the last couple of years is there's been this, this thing of what is he? And a disconnect between what he thinks yeah. he is and what the manager thinks he is. And this gives an opportunity to at least have more information to make that call and allow him the chance to possibly develop a bit in the position he wants to play. So we can see, is there something there without having to take a risk in our team and dropping particularly when he plays with central midfielders. And the only other thing is... Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to ask, how, how confident are you that Sam Allardyce is going to look after him? Well, Sam Allardyce isn't Tony Pulis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've got to remember that yeah. you know, Tony Pulis played proper fucking orc ball. And even when he got hold of like a t a t skillful players like Bojan and Jesse... Basically, they were in the team for a bit and then they got dropped in favour of big blokes that ran around. Whereas <laughs> Sam Allardyce has always had a few, you know, not many, but a few skillful guys in there as well. You know, you've got to remember, this is the bloke that had a midfield one stage of, of Kevin Nolan. Okay, not silky, but, you know, an attacking midfielder. JJ Kotcher and Yuri Jorkiev with Ivan Campo behind them. You know, he's not averse uh, to having yeah. good players. 
and also, and, also, and also the West Brom team he's got, and I think this is critical, the West Brom team he's got, they can't play Ugg thunk up and under football. Like they came up to the championship playing Slavin Bilic, playing a low, lower level, but of attacking possession football. They haven't got a squad built to play the kind of style that we fear Allardyce might want to. They just haven't got the players to play that. If they try to play that, it'll just fall apart completely. Their best players by distance are their more skillful players, who need, possession players who need to be fed the ball. So I think that'll work quite well. Sorry. No, I was just going to say how mind-blowing it is that JJ Okocha was once coached by Sam Allardyce. It's, <laughs> it's something that I've... <laughs> go, and watch, go and watch YouTube of this guy and see how good he was. And then, uh, oh, and Sam Allardyce used to manage him. Yeah, but um, at the same time as he managed, as I say, European Cup winner Ivan Campo and Yuri Jorkayev World Cup winner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that broke your, that's in broken your head, Paul. <laughs> well, no, not at all. Because I, I was there. I remember it happening. But I know it, it, it I was just, like it broke your head. It's the memory of it. I was just going to say when when I was living in Bilbao, uh, ninety eight, ninety nine season, um, they used to call Campo Paquete. He played for Real Madrid, um, and everyone thought he was shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just uh, before we start wrapping up, Anita, what's your thoughts on the two loan moves? Well, not including yeah. Tech Medley and people who've gone. <laughs> I really hope that they will get the game time. And I agree with your point that we can, with Ainsley Maitland-Niles, that we will at least get to see what he can do, where he is better, if he is right or if the managers are right. And I hope that Joe Willock will get more game time because there is something there and he just couldn't get enough here and with us being out of the cup as well mm-hmm. and just playing in you know, Europa League who knows how long again definitely a good long move I'd say even though they leave, leave us a bit tight on, on the position you know I feel so bad for Reese Nelson like surely someone there was someone out there that Reese Nelson could have gone to yeah that's yeah, a good that, shout was, he, was, he was the one that we were hoping would get a move more than anyone really because he he needs to reaffine that assertiveness and confidence that he was showing a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, maybe magically he'll get some game time and hopefully not at wing back or something. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, last thing just before we wrap up. We've got Aston Villa at lunchtime at the weekend away. Paul's already expressed his fears. What do we think? <laughs> Yeah, Amy Martinez master masterclass. Huh? Now that we have, uh, as you said, exchange student in goal. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really confident about that one either. So I'm gonna go with the loss. Not sure how much, but I think that we will definitely score. So maybe I go with yours, Matthew, two one loss. I'm just trying to play a scenario in my head of how Arsenal come out. We don't do well at Villa Park, or we haven't done recently. We used to be a very happy hunting ground for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dean Smith's got a good football side there. Um, I, I think they can win. I absolutely think I'll, I'll, if Arsenal can play as they have um, started started to play, then. They they could win, but a lot of things have to go right for us. You know, may, maybe Aston Villa have a player sent off after ninety seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Jack Grealish, maybe. Yeah, that would be lovely. I think there could be a few goals in it, I, yeah. but I, I think, be, being honest, I, I think, th- th- I hate to say this, I feel terrible saying it, 3-1 Villa. Well, I was going to go 2-2 before we started still talking, and I'm sticking with that. I just think both teams will score. I think both teams will be vulnerable at the back. I think both teams are looking really dangerous around the current penalty areas. Villa are a good side, and they are they are totally on merit from the way they played this season. And I quite like Villa as a club, and I quite like a lot of their players. So good luck to them. But I think we'll scrape that out of there with a point. All right, everyone, we've been going at this for quite some time, so it's time we toddle off. Uh, if anyone's still listening, well done. I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, but nothing else for me to say except for thank you, Paul. Thank you, mate. And thank you, Anita. Thanks, Mitch. And, yeah, have a great week, everyone, and let's hope we manage to turn things around and the ma- magic refereeing gods smile upon us in the most unexpected ways this weekend. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.